Welcome, everyone. You are listening to the LifePoint Christian Church Podcast. Let's get started. Well, good morning. As Pastor Chris said, so glad to have all of you here. You know, he just mentioned that this was the series of, the, or the talk in the series that he wanted to preach. So I was kind of reviewing my notes this morning. I get this text, and it's from Chris, and he just says, don't screw it up. And I was like, well, it's all right. No pressure. No, I'm just kidding. That didn't happen. Uh, I'm not saying he wouldn't send that text, but it didn't happen this morning. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm excited to be with you all today as we wrap up this series called The Good Work. You know, my family, we have four little kids ages nine down to two. And so our kids' style of play has a lot to do with building things these days, right? And so they'll take all the blankets and the pillows and the couch cushions and build forts in our living room. They spent a large part of the yesterday doing that. They have these magnetic tiles. They're awesome. I love playing with them, and they'll use those to build towers. We got a bunch of wooden blocks, and they'll make castles and walls. They have kinetic sand, like sand that sticks together, and they can build all kind of like 3D shapes and stuff. Super fun. I geek out and buy those toys really so that I can play with it more than anything else. But the amount of stuff they build, I'm like, oh man, Aaron, this is fantastic. We got like four little engineers in our household. Now, the stuff they build is structurally unsound, right? Just the worst. Um, but hey, they be, might be on their way to a career in engineering, which would be fantastic. Now, whenever a structure is built, it's inevitable that one of their siblings, typically Miles, destroys it, right? The two-year-old, he just absolutely wrecks it. I think he's convinced that any structure that is built is for him to bring it down to the ground. It's like a never-ending illustration of the walls of Jericho in our house. Now, from time to time, the older kids will build something just so Miles can break it. But the majority of the time, they are less than pleased with his behavior, right? They don't like it. And so Aaron and I spend a decent amount of time helping to rebuild whatever Miles has left in a pile of rubble. And while our kids appreciate our efforts and to help when we help them to build something or to rebuild it, if that's the case, that's certainly not the most important building that's going on in our home, of course, the most, most important building that we have going on in our home is the investment of Aaron and I into the lives of our kids. We're doing everything we can to point them to Jesus, to help mold and shape and make them into the image of Christ. We want to do whatever we can to build their faith, even at a young age. And I know that plenty of you in this room and online share that desire for your own kids or your grandkids, your nieces and nephews. And for the past few weeks, as Pastor Chris mentioned, we've been in this series called The Good Work. And we've been focusing on this burden that Nehemiah had, this calling to go and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem after the Babylonian exile. And when he first learned about the walls of Jerusalem being in ruins, he was still living in Persia in exile, and he was serving as the cupbearer to the king. And so uh, this was weighing on him, and after praying about it for four months, he goes to the king with a bold request. And he's asked to return to his homeland in order to lead an effort to rebuild those walls. And by God's grace, his request was granted, and he's able to return home to do the work. Now, in Nehemiah chapter 3 through 6, it talks all about what went into rebuilding the wall, including overcoming some intense opposition from their enemies. And at the end of chapter 6, we learn that Nehemiah and the Israelites were able to complete the wall, the rebuilding of it, in just 52 days. 
Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 16 says, When all our enemies heard about this, the wall being completed, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. Now, as we studied the book of Nehemiah, Pastor Chris has been challenging each and every one of us to consider the good work that God might be calling us to do in this specific season of our lives. And not only that, he's been providing us with the knowledge and skills we need to overcome the obstacles that will come our way as we strive to accomplish this good work. So if you've missed any part of this series prior, I would encourage you to jump onto our website or on our podcast and get caught up. There's so much going on in the first six chapters of this book that we can apply to our lives. Now, certainly the book of Nehemiah is most known for this account of the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. But as previously mentioned, we learn that the walls were completed at the end of chapter 6, just not even halfway point in the book. And so it leads to this question, well, well, what else is going on, right? What is the second half of this book all about? Well, believe it or not, the focus is on another construction project. After the walls are rebuilt, Nehemiah turns his attention to rebuilding the spiritual health of the nation of Israel. Now, certainly there is no question that God wants us to do a good work. In week one of this series, Pastor Chris mentioned Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, which says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared for us or prepared in advance for us to do. And of course, as Christians, the good work that's for, that is ours to do in every season of our lives is to make disciples. That calling is never going to go away until our time on earth comes to an end or Jesus comes back, whichever happens first. So if you find yourself in a spot where you're wondering, what is my good work? What am I supposed to be doing? The answer is always make disciples. Wherever you are, whatever season you're in, make disciples. And so if you've been struggling throughout this series like, oh, God, what do you want me to do? I, I don't know if I have this specific calling in this season right now. What, what is it that you want me to do? Make disciples. That's always what we're supposed to do. Now, of course, there are going to be moments and times and seasons in our lives where God may give us an additional specific calling or good work to accomplish. For Nehemiah, it was to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. For Moses, it was to lead the Israelites out of Egyptian captivity. For Joshua, it was to lead the Israelites into the promised land. For Jesus, it was to build this movement of disciple-making followers and to die on the cross for the sins of mankind. And so for you and I, if you have a relationship with Jesus as Christ followers, it's so important for us to remain in tune, connected, in step with God and the Holy Spirit so that we can hear his voice and be aware of any specific calling or good work that he might place on our lives. And then we need to be ready to say yes, because we certainly don't want to miss out or fail to accomplish the good work that he has for us. But in our effort to determine what that good work might be, that specific good work, and in our effort to figure out how are we going to accomplish this good work that God has given us, we can also not lose sight of the fact that God wants to do a good work in us. 
You see in uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, Paul writes, He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Like the walls of Jerusalem, God wants to rebuild us. He wants to make us into the image of Christ. Moments ago, I mentioned that Nehemiah, he turns his attention to the rebuilding of the spiritual health of the nation of Israel. And throughout chapters 7 through 13, we see how Nehemiah goes about this work of bringing about spiritual restoration. And ultimately, our spiritual growth is God's responsibility. It's all up to him in part, right? He gives us a role to play as well. He's ultimately responsible for it, but he gives us a role to play. We're not to have this passive standoff and and, and hands-off approach when it comes to our spiritual health. And so as we strive to conform our lives to the image of Christ, I think it would be beneficial for us to know how Nehemiah goes about this work of revitalizing the spiritual lives, revitalizing the spiritual health of the people, and then we can follow their example. And that will be the focus of our time together this morning. And so first off, we learn that conformity to Christ or spiritual restoration begins with Scripture. And I would guess that's not a surprise to any of us who are sitting in church. It begins with Scripture. And we see that in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 3. It says, He, Ezra the priest, read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Jump down to verse 7 and 8. The Levites instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. And at the end of chapter 8, it says, Day after day, from the first day to the last, Ezra read from the book of the law of God. Now, the people gathered together to hear God's word only six days after the wall was completed. Six days later, all the people are gathering for this situation, this circumstance that we find here in chapter 8. They're gathering, listening to God's word and having it explained to them. And they're reading the book of the law, which we know are the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And we know that the law was given by God to the nation of Israel to instruct them on how to live their lives, how they were going to be in right relationship with God. Now, Nehemiah, this wasn't a surprise to him. He knew that to be true. He knew the role the book of the law had in the life of the Israelites. And therefore, he also understood that the catalyst for spiritual restoration would be re-familiarizing themselves with God's word. You see, without a growing knowledge and understanding of Scripture, it would be awfully hard for them to know what God desires of them and for them. And the same is true for us as well. You see, Scripture was and still is today the primary means by which God communicates with us, his people. It provides us with the standard, the vision, the goal for our lives and what we should be going after. But if we don't have a growing understanding of God's word, a growing knowledge of God's word, then it's going to be really, really difficult for us to know what God desires for us, what we should be conforming to. And so in Nehemiah chapter 8, 
we see that the Israelites were reading scripture for large portions of the day for multiple days in a row. It says from sun up till noon. Large amounts of time invested into reading God's word. Essentially, they were binge reading scripture, right? That's what's going on here. They were binge reading scripture, which is far more important and valuable than binge watching Netflix. But these guys were committed, right? They were committed to developing a greater understanding of God's word. Now, here's the thing. Reading scripture aloud for half of the day, every day, may not be a sustainable pattern, but I do think Nehemiah successfully demonstrates to the Israelites and to us the importance of scripture. It's vital to our lives and to our spiritual health, and we can't afford to neglect spending time in God's word. Now, I recognize there are going to be days, even a week, maybe two, when we miss time reading God's word. But the norm ought to be that we are in God's word daily. You see, if Sunday is the only time that we are studying and opening God's word, that's a significant issue. If you think about that, if you did the same thing physically, if you only had a meal or two every week, it would be very difficult for you to say, I'm going to thrive physically. And the same is true for us spiritually. If we only have a meal or two a week, there are going to be a lot of spiritually scrawny Christians, right? There's going to be a lot of spiritual scrawny Christians because we need to ingest, we need to intake more of God's word if it's going to have an impact on our lives. And certainly neglecting God's word isn't a matter of accessibility. You and I most likely have multiple Bibles sitting at home. And if not, you have a Bible on your device. It's on your person all day long. You see, this is a matter of priority. It's a matter of priority. And when we make it a habit of missing time in God's word, it's as if we're saying everything I did today is more important than spending time with God. I don't want to make that claim, right? Everything I did today is more important than spending time with God. Like, God, I got it. I'm good today. I'll hit you up later, maybe next week. Today, though, I'm good to go. I got it figured out. Don't need your help. Don't need your word. Let's see what happens. Not a very good approach to life, right? Not a very good approach if we want to have a thriving spiritual life. Now, I'm not advocating for devotions that last half of the day, a quiet time that lasts half the day. And, and I also recognize that 30 minutes of uninterrupted time, 10 minutes of uninterrupted time is not always realistic, right, or a possibility, I have four kids at home, little kids. I get it. The demands are endless. You're working. You have jobs. People are clamoring for your attention. I get it. It may not always be a realistic expectation. But in those seasons when quiet time is hard to come by, we've got to do whatever we can to just get a little bit. Subscribe to the verse of the day. Commit to reading a chapter from Psalms or Proverbs every day. When you're driving around, have the Bible app open and let it read to you, right? Let it read scripture to you. And if nothing else, open the Bible app up while you're on the toilet. Just saying. 
Just saying, because I know there are a bunch of you who are already on social media or on a sports app anyways. So let's be real, right? That is some uninterrupted time for some, right? Uninterrupted time. There you go. I just carved out some time for you. Just wash your hands, all right? And your phone. But here's the thing. If we want to be conformed to the image of Christ, it begins with Scripture, a commitment to growing in our knowledge and understanding of it. Listen to how David describes the word of God. In Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11, it says this. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Man, I hope that this becomes our perspective of God's word and that we grow in our hunger for scripture. It starts with the Bible. Second, we learn that conformity to the image of Christ or spiritual restoration requires repentance. And so that we're all on the same page, I'm gonna define repentance for us. It's a heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, and a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to Christ. And so after spending a significant amount of time reading God's word, which is recorded in chapter 8, and recounting Israelites' history in chapter 9, it's essentially like the spark notes version of everything that happened to the Israelites. That's going on in chapter 9. After both of these things, they realize, excuse me, they realize that that God had uh, been just and faithful to them despite the Israelites' unfaithfulness and sin. See, Scripture, again, the catalyst for spiritual restoration. It leads them to this awareness and causes the people to confess their sin and repent. In Nehemiah chapter 8, following the reading and explanation of Scripture, we see this response from the Israelites. Verse 9 says, Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were instructing, trying to avoid water, it might not happen, sorry guys, We'll see what happens. All right. Maybe not. You guys are about to get like the Liam Neeson version of this message. (laughs) Here we go. Verse (laughs) 9. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra this priest and the scribe, and the Levites were instructing the people and said to them, This day is sacred to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. See, their sorrow was a sign of their movement toward true repentance. One commentator writes, the people were probably grief-stricken to realize how they had failed God. They had not lived up to his holy expectations. See, we see a further confession of sin at the beginning of the next chapter. Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 2 and 3 says, They stood in their places and confessed their sin and the wickedness of their fathers. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day, and they spent another quarter in confession and in worshiping the Lord their God. 
See, in order for the nation of Israel to be spiritually restored, revitalized, they had to acknowledge the fact that they'd gone astray. They had to acknowledge the fact that we've missed the mark. And if they failed to see their mistakes and their need for repentance, spiritual restoration would be impossible. Thankfully, reading the book of the law made their shortcomings clear and it inspired them to action. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. And for you and I as followers of Christ, it ought to be our desire to look more and more like Jesus, to conform to the image of Christ. However, we fall short of that standard and we're always going to fall short of that standard until we see Jesus face to face in heaven meaning confession of sin and repentance is necessary and ought to be a part of our daily walk with God, just like time in his word. Similar to the Israelites in Nehemiah chapter 8 and 9, the more we spend time in scripture, the more we realize our shortcomings and need for repentance. As Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so while being called out, rebuked, and corrected, it's not always the most pleasant experience. We can know that God has our best interest at heart, that he's doing whatever he can to mold and shape us to look more like his son, Jesus. And we can know while the correcting and the training and rebuking is going on that ultimately it's going to prepare us, it's going to equip us for the good work that God has in store for us to do. Third, we learn that conformity to the image of Christ, spiritual restoration, requires a commitment to obedience. In keeping with the definition of repentance, the people not only express sorrow, but they make a commitment to turn from their sin and live in obedience. And we see this in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 38, which says, in view of all of this, the reading of scripture, the recounting of what's gone on throughout their history in Nehemiah chapter uh, 9, in view of all of this, we are making a binding agreement putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are affixing their seals to it. You see, once the people recognize that their covenant with God had been broken, they seek to reestablish it with this binding agreement and to make sure everyone knows what they're committing to. They write it down, and the leaders of the Israelites sign off on it. In the latter half of chapter 10, we find the terms of their agreement. In Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 29, it says, All the peoples bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord our Lord. And the rest of chapter 10 highlights the specific laws that the Israelites agree to follow. Now, we certainly live in a different day and age than the Old Testament Israelites. And not only that, they were living under the old covenant, and we were living now under the new covenant. However, we're going to take a few moments to explore and talk about some of the different laws that the Israelites commit to uphold, because there are still principles for us and commands for us to apply to our lives. And so first up, we see in Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 30, it says, we promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or take their daughters for our sons. See, here the Israelites recommit to a law that was expressed in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. And while it may sound a little odd to us, 
This command was all about preserving their identity as the people of God and doing a work and preventing them, the Israelites, from worshiping false gods, which was oftentimes the byproduct of when they intermarried with other people groups. And so for us, when it comes to living out our faith today, we must also be selective, very selective, when it comes to choosing a spouse. Of course, we have the freedom to choose someone of any race or ethnicity. However, we should only choose someone to marry who shares our love for and faith in Jesus. That narrows the pool. Because in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, Paul writes, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. It's just that simple. In chapter 10, verse 31, it says the Israelites commit to keep the Sabbath holy, which is one of the Ten Commandments, and they're going to do that by not buying merchandise or working on that day. And now for us today, while there is not a specific Sabbath day set aside for all followers of Jesus in Romans, right, Paul says some people consider one day more holy than the other, no matter what, just honor God. And so we don't have this day set aside that's honored by everyone as the Sabbath. However, the principle of the Sabbath is still relevant and to be applied. We all need to develop this rhythm of rest and create margin in our lives, but all too often, we're overrun by our busyness. We need to apply what Pastor Chris talked about last week and, and get better about saying no, right? We could all benefit from that. And then in verses 32 through 39, the Israelites promised to follow the laws put in place to keep the temple or the church up and running and to give an offering to God, the first fruits of their crops and animals. And their commitment is summed up in verse 39, which says, we will not neglect the house of our God. Now for followers of Jesus today, giving our first fruits to God remains a very relevant principle. But to be clear, God doesn't need our money, right? God doesn't need our money. And it's actually not our money. It's not our money to begin with. He doesn't need it, and it's not ours to begin with. However, God calls us to give. Again, not because he needs it, because giving is a method that he uses to raise people with surrendered hearts to him. And so like the Israelites, we as followers of Christ are instructed to give a tithe, which is 10% to the local church because God wants us to invest in his kingdom in this world. Now, these commandments are, are listed in Nehemiah 10 and, and they addressed specific areas in which the Israelites had fallen short of God's standards. So it makes sense for them to recommit to those specific things in order to live in obedience to them. And while there are certainly aspects of those laws that you and I need to apply to our lives, the reality is what you and I struggle with might be different than what the Israelites struggled with. And so your commitments may look different than my commitments that we need to make when it comes to living in obedience to God. But no matter what, if we're going to become more like Jesus and thrive spiritually, then we must commit to living in obedience to him. Now, at the end of chapter 10, we see the, the following or following this reestablishment of the covenant, 
We see that Nehemiah coordinates this effort to repopulate the city of Jerusalem, right? People have been scattered and and carried off into exile, and now Nehemiah is making this effort to repopulate the city, and we see a list in verse or chapter 11 of all the people who begin to move back into the city of Jerusalem. And then in chapter 12, the city wall, which was completed at the end of chapter 6, is now dedicated. And it's important for us to note that throughout this entire time from the end of chapter 10 when they make this covenant all the way through chapter 12 and the beginning of chapter 13, the people were living up to their end of the covenant. They were faithful to it. However, their faithfulness would be short-lived. And with this in mind, the fourth truth that we need to learn is that conformity to the image of Christ requires combating complacency. See, between Nehemiah chapter 13, verses 3 and 4, there's this unspecified amount of time that goes by. It could have been up to multiple years long. And it's during this period of time between verses 3 and 4 that things start to go south for the Israelites. In, chapter, in verses 6 through 7, we also learn that Nehemiah isn't around during this period of time. He had gone back to serve as, as for King Artaxerxes in Persia. So he's not in Jerusalem when the, they take an unfortunate term. But once again, just like previously in the book, Nehemiah is given permission to return to Jerusalem a second time. And essentially, chapter 13 is a description of how the Israelites have gone astray and the action taken by Nehemiah to right the ship. Now, sadly, every single law that the Israelites had just recommitted to obeying was already broken by the time Nehemiah goes to work on the people. Check this out. In chapter 13, verses 4 to 13, we see the ways in which the temple had been neglected. First, Tobiah, which that name might ring a bell. We've been talking about him. He was one of the men who uh, opposed the rebuilding of this wall. No, uh, Tobiah had this relationship of some kind, this connection with Eliashib, the priest. Some say it was through a marriage connection. And it was through this connection, there's this backdoor dealing that takes place where a large room in the temple, which was supposed to be for the offerings of the people, was given to Tobiah, an enemy of Nehemiah, to serve as a an apartment of sorts. So you got that going on. Additionally, the people stopped giving and those who worked in the temple had to return to their fields because there was no more offerings for them to live off of and provide the services of the temple for the people. And so here's the thing. Nehemiah, he's not messing around, right? He's not messing around when he arrives on the scene. In verses 8 and 9, it says, I was greatly displeased and threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms, and then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. And Nehemiah also saw to it that the people started to give again, and those who were supposed to be doing the work in the temple returned to do their jobs. If you move on down the chapter in verses 15 to 22, we learn that the Israelites fell back into the habit of working and trading on the Sabbath, thus nullifying this commitment they had made to keep the Sabbath holy. In an effort to preserve the Sabbath, Nehemiah had the gates of the city closed until the Sabbath was over, and he stationed some of his men near the gates to ensure that no one brought in merchandise. He's not messing around. Check out what happens in verse 20 and 21. Once or twice, the merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside Jerusalem. But I warned them and said, why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I will lay hands on you. 
Whew, Nehemiah, he ain't playing, right? From that time on, I love this. From that time on, no one came, right? No one came on the Sabbath. Moving on, right? In verses 23 through 27, we discover that the Israelites were also marrying, marrying foreigners, breaking the vow they had made in chapter 10. And once again, Nehemiah gets his point across. Verse 25 says this, I rebuked them and called down curses on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. Ouch, right? I made them take an oath in God's name and said, you are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Now, whether or not it was the best approach for Nehemiah to do this is certainly debatable. But you better believe when those dudes looked in the mirror and saw a patch of their hair missing, they remembered the vow they took, right? Like, oh, we probably shouldn't do that again. Otherwise, we're not going to have anything going on. Here's the reality. Despite the covenant the Israelites made to God's law to obey it, they found themselves living in disobedience again. They failed to remain vigilant. They got complacent. And they made compromises. And certainly we can't be too quick to judge or judge too harshly. Because all too often we find ourselves in the very same place. We have every intention of living in obedience to God. We even make commitments to change. But time and time again, we, we let down our guard, we get complacent, and we make compromises. But if we want to conform to the image of Christ, we have to stay vigilant and combat complacency. Because when we allow ourselves to drift, we always drift towards sin, not surrender. When we allow ourselves to drift, we always drift towards sin and not surrender. And so you need to ask yourself a question. Am I drifting? Am I drifting? Or am I actively pursuing the, God, the work that God wants to do in me and through me? As this series comes to a close, my hope and prayer that we are a church that accomplishes the good work that God has for us. That in every season of our lives, we make disciples and that we will say yes to God when he gives us a specific job to do. And that no matter what we're doing for God, that we will never neglect the work that God wants to do in us. The work of making us into the image of his son. Let's pray. God, we, we love you. God, we want to be faithful to you. We want to be committed to your word. Live in obedience to it. God, we want to be faithful to who you call us to be, to, to become more and more like your son, Jesus. But we can't do it on our own. And God, so we, we humbly come before you seeking forgiveness. God, and, and repenting, turning of the things where, where we've gotten off track. God, and we, we pray that you would help us to accomplish the good work that you have for us to do. And that day by day, we look more and more like your son, Jesus, for your glory and the expansion of your kingdom here on this earth.
In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you enjoyed today's message. You can learn more about us by visiting us online at lifepoint.org. If you are ever in the Sacramento area, we would love to see you in person. Events and service times can be found on our website. Thank you for listening, and we hope you join us for our next episode.